Good morning, family. Our scripture this morning is 1 Chronicles 10. Please stand if you wish to read with me. Page 342 in the Pew Bibles, 1 Chronicles 10. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishu, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his own sword and died. Thus Saul died. He and his three sons and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the temple. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. But when all Jabesh-Gilead heard all the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and ask you that you would bring illumination upon your word. This morning, I ask that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be soft, our ears would be attentive to what you have to say to us this morning. God, would you give us a heart that is 
set towards yours. Would you remind us and strengthen us in the truth? God, even as we look at this portrait this morning, would you come to us and edify us and call us to yourself? For Jesus, for his sake, for his glory, and in his name, amen. Amen. So just a quick review to help us situate this morning as we jump into the narrative portion of the books of Chronicles. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at the introduction of the book, which is these nine chapters of genealogy uh, at the beginning. And this morning, we're going to jump directly into the narrative where the author of Chronicles begins. But I just want to give us a quick review so that we can understand where we're at and what's going on. If you look at the notes, uh, just a quick reminder, the books of Chronicles are a very important part of the Old Testament. They're Uh, Books that we get a remarkably rich theological retelling of Israel's history with a particular focus on David's royal dynasty, the kings that come from the line of David, and uh, a particular emphasis on the centrality of the temple and the worship of the Lord at the heart of God's people. Look at letter B. It's a necessary perspective that we have on Israel's story and therefore our story as the people of God. To rightly understand these books, we've talked about it's important to understand the situation and the purpose in which they were written. And I'll just quickly remind you, if you go back to the beginning of First Chronicles 9, the first two verses, gives us the situation, right? It's this time after the Babylonian exile, the children of Israel had been taken away into captivity for 70 years and had been released by King Cyrus of the Persians to go back to their land and rebuild the temple of God. And it's in this time, after the Babylonian exile, when the people are starting to come back to Israel and rebuild the, te- the temple, these returned exiles are coming back to, to perform the work of God, and the chronicler is retelling the story of Israel's history in order to encourage and edify them that they might uh, continue in the work. Letter D, the primary purpose of the author seems to be an attempt to remind the people that their distinction is rightly ordered worship to the Lord, right? So this is what sets them apart. This is what makes them who they are, that they have been called out by the Lord, set apart as as a people unto him, and that their identity is meant to exist or consist in worshiping him as the Lord, seeking his face. And there's a particular focus we're going to see in this book of calling the people to seek hard after the Lord. This is, this is kind of the, the main point of the book is God has brought these people to be his own and he desires and longs for them to seek his face, right? But, but this is hard, right? These, these exiles have come back to the land. And what you find, if you go read Ezra and Nehemiah, they get back to the land and the work, which you and I all know this, right? God will call you to something. He'll call you to obey him. He'll call you to be faithful in a particular place. And it's way harder than you thought. It's way more opposed than you thought. And it's way smaller than you thought, 
right? It's way less significant than you thought it was going to be. You think when God calls you, you're going to change the whole world. And really, what you don't know you're going to be doing is changing diapers. (laughs) It's harder. It's more opposed. It's smaller. And into that, the reminder is, people of God, do not lose the, the true north of what it means to seek hard after the face of God, remembering his character, his glory, what he's called you to. So this first narrative, letter E, in the book of Chronicles is very important in the scope of the work. Although the author gives very little space to the life of Saul. I mean, go compare this to what you find in the book of 1 Samuel, right? 1 Samuel, there's eight chapters devoted to the emergence of Saul as the king of Israel. This we don't get at all, right? We don't don't get anything of Saul's origin story. We get nothing of his backstory, nothing of where he emerged from. All we get is this story at the end of his life, but it's highly important. He, the author, utilizes Saul, and you'll hear me say this several times, as an anti-type. He's actually setting Saul up as a foil to what he's wanting to call you to. Saul is to serve for us as this anti-type of the hoped-for outcome of this whole book, right? Particularly related to the heart posture that the chronicler desires to provoke in the readers of the book. I'll give you a quick outline there of this chapter, but we're just going to walk through these three things uh, line by line as we walk through this chapter, and then we'll make some implications, so look at Roman numeral two, Saul's death and the end of the house. Right after, after the opening nine chapters of genealogy, right? I, I read a commentator and he likened the book of Chronicles. He said if it was a movie, it would be like 45 minutes of credits. And then the opening scene is at the end of a battle, right? You're like jump straight into the end of a battle. You're not even getting like the lead up to why are we at battle? What's going on here? Who's, who's the main players? You've literally just jumped in to the scene where the guy's dying. That's what's happening in Chronicles, right? So we've rolled the credits for quite a while and now we're just like, uh, you know, straight into the battle scene as this king of Israel is coming to his demise. The writer of Chronicles is not concerned to retell any of the other events of Saul's life or his death, right? This is likely because he presumes his readers would have been familiar with this, right? They're bringing this knowledge into the reminder of what's happening, right? They're they're familiar with the stories of King Saul and how he came into power and some of the things of his life, how the kingdom had been taken away from him to be given to David. He's you're, you're intended to bring some information into this hearing. So he's not concerned with retelling the events for their own sake. Rather, he wants to demonstrate how Saul served as an antitype of the heart response that he's seeking to evoke through this narrative, right? So one of the things that you need to remember when you're reading Chronicles is the author, his purpose is more theological, then it is just historical, right? He's, he's 
crafting this retelling for a purpose. He wants you to see and experience and know something, and he actually wants to persuade you to behave a certain way. That's, that's the goal of this retelling. All right, let's go to the top of page two. So we, again, are thrust directly into this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. If you have your Bibles, let's look again. First Chronicles chapter 10. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So we're put right into this thing and we've got two armies at war with one another. Israel, the people of God, and the Philistines. And it's important for you to understand as we're thrust directly into this narrative who exactly the Philistines are in the worldview of the, of the Bible, right? The Philistines are the kind of prototypical enemy that lives at the doorstep of God's people. They're the people that are the neighbors that you're only ever one or two choices away from them reclaiming and consuming and encompassing you, right? So these are the, the, the prototypical enemy of God's people, always with this potential that the people of God who have been called out of the nations to live separately, they're really, really easily re-encompassed by the nations. And that's the Philistines here. The armies of Israel's enemies have pressed in upon them and they're causing destruction. The armies are dying. They're falling slain on this mountain. They're bringing desolation. And the reader is meant to understand almost immediately the irony of this account. You see, back in 1 Samuel, when Saul was called to be the king, he had, uh, when, when God came to Samuel, God told Samuel, I'm gonna appoint a guy who is going to gain victory over the Philistines. Right? I'm going I'm to appoint a king for you, and the king is going to push back the Philistines, and he's going to give you victory. And he did at some points in his reign, but what we see here is almost this immediate reversal of what Saul had been commissioned by God to do in the Philistines now coming back against him. Right? Look at 1 Samuel 9 here. This is God speaking to Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, that's Saul, and you shall anoint him to be the prince over my people, Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Right? So we see that this is actually the commission that God had been given or had given to Saul to be victorious over these people. But now we're thrust into this narrative and Saul is failing on what he had been commissioned to do. Letter E, another thing we need to know and remember is that God declared that he would use and leave foreign people remaining in Canaan as a means by which to chasten and discipline his people throughout seasons of disobedience, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Judges. It's this interesting little book uh, in the Old Testament 
where you read it and you're not really sure, am I supposed to agree with these things or not agree with these things? Am I supposed to be setting these things up as like examples to follow or things to avoid, right? This is, this, it's a really, really uh, dicey book, right? Like there's a lot of really graphic things going on in there. But one of the main points of the book of Judges is that you see this cycle of how God deals with his people in the midst of their disobedience. So what he does is he leaves these foreign enemies near them and he does this to strengthen them towards obeying him and remembering who they are. But what happens is they experience a season of ease and comfort and blessing and they forsake the Lord. They actually leave his ways. They turn and they begin to abandon the ways of God. And so what God does is to help them remember that he has called them to be obedient and to seek him, he lets the foreign army come against them and press them. And then they get in this tight spot, they come to their senses and they go, God, deliver us, take care of us, remember who you are, remember who we are to you. And he goes, okay, I will. And he raises up a judge, the judge delivers them, they get a little bit of a season of peace and then what do we do with the season of peace? We forsake the Lord. We, we forget. We go into the ways of ease and comfort and self-indulgence, just like they did. And he does it all again, right? So this is what's happening as well. I'll let you read Judges 2 on your own. So letter F. Here we are in the heat of the battle, right? The Philistines are pressing. The Israelites are retreating. Everyone's falling slain on the side of the mountain, Saul and his sons are getting struck down. John, or his three sons are slain here with him and the battle is pressing hard upon him. Verse three, archers are coming against him and he's wounded by them. So Saul comes to the realization, we're done for. And I don't want to be uh, dealt with the way that imposing armies deal with kings in the ancient world. So he tells his armor bearer, Kill me. Kill me now so I don't have to deal with the desecration that's about to happen if these guys come and take me. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be put on display. Just go ahead and get it over with. And his armor bearer won't do it. He won't do it. The armor bearer has the fear of the Lord in him. He's like, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. No way. No way am I going to do that. So Saul falls on his own sword. He kills himself to avoid the pain and the torment and the desecration that's about to happen. Letter G, the chronicler then notes that Saul, his three sons, all of his house died that day on Mount Gilboa. That's uh, verse six. He breaks in with this narrative statement. Saul died, he and his three sons and all his house died together. Now I wanna say something. This doesn't mean that the chronicler believed Saul didn't have other sons, right? So Saul had other sons. And even the chronicler knows that. If you go read 1 Chronicles 8, there are other sons in Saul's line, right? He also isn't like unaware that one of Saul's sons served as the king for seven years over the 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom. What the chronicler is trying to do is give you God's perspective on what was happening. 
He wants to give you the heavenly interpretation. And so what he's saying is, in that moment when Saul died, his house was over. Now it took some time for it to happen, but in that moment, it was over with. His house was no longer, right? From heaven's perspective, it was all but done. Even though it took some time to work itself out in in reality. The final verse of the section, letter H, highlights the humiliating reality of Saul's death for the nation of Israel. With their king dead and their armies defeated, the people flee to the cities at their borders and the Philistines take back part of the land that had been won during Saul's reign. Look at this in verse seven. When the men of Israel who were in the valley saw the army had fled, there's no more protection. And that Saul and his sons were dead, our leaders are gone. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Right, so the first section of this, verses one to seven, gives us this picture of the king and the people broken. They're broken, right? The king's dead, the people are fleeing, everyone's running for their lives. We're in a really bad spot. Doesn't get it much better. Look at number three. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him, took his head and his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. So we, we're a little far removed from what's going on here, right? You don't see this happen very, very much in our modern world. But essentially what is happening is the Philistines, because of the worldview of the ancient, uh, the ancient world here, they believe that because they have victory over the armies of the people of God, that their God is the superior God, right? And so to demonstrate that their God is the superior God, what they do is they cut off the head of the king and take it and put it like, um, like a trophy in the temple of their God, right? To give honor and glory to Dagon that he is stronger than the God of the Israelites, Right? This is desecration and abomination, right? After the death of Saul, he's desecrated, right? His head is cut off, his armor is taken. In the ancient world, this act is one of defilement and boasting. The Philistines sent their heralds out throughout their land to tell both the people and their gods, right? Do you, did you catch this? Look in verse nine. The Philistines send messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols. This is like a false gospel. If you actually like think through what's going on, they're sending messengers to go and proclaim that their God had victory over the Israelites' God. They're mocking and boasting and giving glory to their deity over the living God. Now, again, here's, here's one of the places where I'm, I'm, 
I, I don't know how to help us connect to this because we live in a world where we don't believe any of this stuff is going on, right? We think that Dagon was like some made up thing off the top of somebody's mind and they were uh, backwards and weird for worshiping him. They just made some idol. They were like, we guess that, uh, that he kind of looks like this. No, Dagon was a real being. A real being who came and stole worship from the living God, from these people. Usurped worship, right? He, he's a real being or a real being. He might have a different name, but that might have been the name they went by. There are real spiritual beings who stole worship from these people. Okay? So they're believing that this spiritual being actually has power over God most high. This is, this is the real world view of, their, uh, of how they live, right? Their awareness of spiritual realities is more in touch with reality than your and my disbelief. I just want that to be really clear to you. Just because you don't believe this stuff is real doesn't mean it isn't. There are still real gods that steal the worship from the living God. They just pretend that they don't exist now or have convinced Westerners that they don't exist. So this is what's going on. This picture is intended to show the readers that in the moment of Saul's death and the victory of the Philistines, it looked to the natural eye like the Philistines and their gods had secured victory over Israel and her God. So they're sent into this desecration. However, look at letter D here. One cool thing about reading the scripture and serving the living God is he doesn't play by the rules. He plays by his rules and they're right. He doesn't play by the rules of all these other lesser powers. We're to remember that at times when it looks like the Lord is defeated, he's actually using the principalities and rulers of other nations like pawns in a chess game to get what he wants. Another time that Dagon appears in the scripture is in 1 Samuel 4 and 5. And I just want to invite you to go read it on a different time. It's when the Ark of the Covenant gets taken by the Philistines. They take the Ark, which is this high point of Israel's like um, uh, worship, like a really important artifact for them. It gets taken into this temple. And what you see is what looks like the Lord being taken away is actually an invasion strategy. Like he goes into this temple and demonstrates how much more power he has than Dagon because this box makes Dagon's statue fall over one night and then its head and its arms fall off like miraculously one night. It's crazy. So the Lord will use seeming defeat to have his way and demonstrate that he is Lord of all. Look at page three. 
Okay, so the second section finishes. We're in a real dark spot, right? The king is dead. The people are running. And it looks like the other gods won. That's where we are. Now, the chronicler is going to give his theological interpretation of what's happening. He's going to tell you how to think about this. That's what these verses are. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And also he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So in these two verses, the author of Chronicles gives a theological understanding of these events surrounding Saul's death and how they're going to function in the whole of his narrative. So the author interprets the events for us, stating that Saul died for a purpose. His, the purpose for which Saul died was what uh, we, we get translated as his breach of faith. Now, if you read the, the, the scriptures here, you read through Chronicles, sometimes this gets inter, or, uh, translated as faithlessness. Sometimes it's translated as treachery. But the idea is really important throughout the whole book. So already in the book, letter C, the author has defined the concept of breaking faith as turning and running to other gods as opposed to seeking the Lord. And he's demonstrated that the judgment of God in relation to such treachery. So look at 1 Chronicles 5. Again, this is in the middle of the genealogies. And as I've said, if you've been with us, anytime there's a narrative break in the genealogies, it's an important concept for you to understand. This is one that happens during the genealogies. So 1 Chronicles 5, he breaks in from these lists of names and he says, these, the sons of Manasseh, broke faith with God Uh, with the God of their fathers, and they whored after the gods of the peoples of the land, whom God had destroyed before him. So he defines what breaking faith is. It's turning away from the living God. So this concept that is going to be so prevalent in the book is right in front of us. He's already given definition for it. And he demonstrates in this chapter as well that the result of breaking faith is judgment, right? What does it say next? So, because, because they broke faith, God did something. What did God do? He stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took them into exile. Again, making it look like he was losing, like he didn't have control of what was happening sending his own people into exile at the hand of a foreign army because of their breach of faith. We got this in 1 Chronicles 9. Judah was taken into exile. Remember, we, this is the situation of the book. Judah was taken into exile. Why? Because of their breach of faith. Same word. Right, So we get put into this narrative. We see the, the destruction that's coming on Saul and his house and the people. And the author wants you to know, why did Saul die? Because he broke faith with God. He broke faith with the living God. This is going to be a, an important idea all through the rest of the book, especially in Second Chronicles 
when the author begins assessing the various kings on whether they walked in the ways of the Lord or they didn't. All over the place. This guy broke faith. This guy was faithless. The people became faithless. They broke faith with the Lord. This is a remarkably important assessment. But the chronicler goes on. He doesn't just leave us wondering what does it mean to break faith. Look at letter E. He, he actually describes for us two particular ways that Saul committed such treachery against the Lord. And these are important and I think are tied together. And again, meant to be for us a foil of what is meant to be produced in the heart response to this book. First, we're told that Saul did not keep the commandment of the Lord. Look at this in verse 13. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in what? He did not keep the command of the Lord. Right? So we see here faithlessness, breaking faith, looks like willful disobedience to the command of the Lord. Now, for the readers, this is likely referencing two big things that are clear in the books of Samuel. I just want to highlight these because I think they're instructive for us. The first is Saul sinned against God at Gilgal by functioning like a priest and disobeying a direct commandment from God. So in 1 Samuel 10, Saul's getting sent out to go into battle. Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and he says, when you go, go down with the armies, I'm going to come to you, and when I get to you, I will offer a burnt offering on your behalf. Seven days you shall wait, and I will come, and I will tell you what to do. This is God's word. So Saul gets sent out with the word of God. He's aware of what he's supposed to do. They go down to Gilgal. Seven days are coming. It's getting really hard, and Saul breaks. Look at this here, 1 Samuel 13. All Israel heard and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. The people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and in holes and rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. You're so afraid you're jumping into graves. That's, that's what's happening here. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, what you may not see in this is as the leader, he was commanded by God to obey. And what Saul gives demonstration to is a profound insight to our hearts. Here's a question you need to ask. When it gets really hard, it's longer than you want it to be. The people are terrified and fleeing and it's, you're being pressed in upon with trouble. 
Do you run to take it into your own hands? That's what's happening here, right? The people are anxious. The pressure is coming and everybody wants him to do something. They're pressing down on him. And what does he do? He offers the offering, right? He refuses to wait upon the Lord and yields to the pressure of people and his own troubled soul, right? How do we respond when pressure mounts and people turn on us and scatter? How do you respond? Do you respond by waiting on the Lord or do you respond by taking things into your own hands? And then Saul has this great justification for it, right? As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I always find that to be funny, right? How much longer did he have to wait, right? He goes through the process. How long does the process take? 30 minutes, an hour? He finishes, the smoke's rising, he turns, and here comes Samuel. Prophet showing up. The Gandalf moment, right? Precisely when he means to. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering, right? I got anxious. When everybody wanted me to do something, I didn't have the courage to stand and be obedient to the Lord. When all the pressure was mounting, you didn't seem like you were coming within the days appointed and that the Philistines mustered in upon me. I said, now the Philistines will come down and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I did what I had to. Don't blame me. I did what the moment required. Samuel looks to him and says, you have done foolishly. Why? You have not kept the command of the Lord. So there it is. Saul broke faith in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. All right, look at the top of page four. Second, we see that Saul disobeyed another time by failing to follow through on God's commandment to fully execute judgment on the Amalekites. This demonstrated that Saul was not zealous for the things that God demanded, right? Saul, we're going to see here, he was commanded by God, sent on a mission, go destroy the Amalekites and raise all of it to the ground. Leave nothing behind. Now, we don't have time to go into the ethics of that or what was going on there. Um, That's for maybe a different time when we preach through judges. But he was commanded by God to do it. And Saul sets himself up. Here's here's a place that I just want to Put a, put a seed in us. Saul sets himself up as more spiritual than God. Or you and me in our day, our temptation to be more merciful than God. Right? We think we can be more merciful than God. We, we avoid the, the judgment parts or the harsh parts or the reality of the truth of God's disdain for sin and, and that which is outside of his commandments. And we believe that we're more merciful than the one who says, I delight in mercy. And yet there's no distinction in his heart or no tension in his heart between mercy and requiring holiness. But look at this. So the Lord sends him to, on a mission 
He doesn't fulfill it. Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them till they're all consumed. Why didn't you obey? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did exactly what he said. I went on the mission just like he told me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But those people over there, wasn't my fault. I didn't do it, right? I didn't do it. Blame the people. Sounds like Adam, right? This woman you gave me. It's your fault, God, and then it's her fault. These people didn't do it. They took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, and they sacrificed to the Lord. Samuel said, now, now, now here's the problem. Saul is the accountable one. He was given the command, not them. So following through on obedience was his responsibility. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen better than the fat of rams. For those of you that were in Sunday school this morning, partial obedience is not obedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So the chronicler highlights this. He didn't obey the commandment, but he also highlights another reality. Saul, his breach of faith consisted that he sought guidance from a medium and did not seek the Lord. Look at this in verse 13 and 14. Or yeah, 13 and 14. He didn't keep the command of the Lord and also he consulted a medium seeking guidance from them. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. So the chronicler desires to show, I believe in this, that even up to the end of his life, Saul could have repented and sought the Lord, but chose not to, right? The last thing that Saul does before going into the battle of his death is goes to this witch of Endor, this medium, and he calls up the prophet Samuel from the dark places wandering among the desolate uh, of the dead. What the chronicler wants us to see is even Saul was required up to the end of the Lord or up to the end of his life, he could have stopped, he could have repented, and he could have called on the name of the Lord. But he chose not to. He did not repent. He turned his heart and sought out guidance elsewhere outside of the Lord. So the chronicler, look at letter G, seems to highlight these aspects or give us this interpretation to demonstrate two specific, specific things at the beginning of his narrative. So we got this picture. The king is dead. The people are gone. God looks like he's losing. Let me go ahead and tell you what's happening. Saul disobeyed the Lord. He was faithless. He did not obey the commandment of the Lord. He would not seek the Lord. Therefore, what does it say here? The Lord put him to death. It wasn't the Philistines pressing in upon him. It wasn't even Saul falling on his own sword. This was God's 
judgment. Why is that at the beginning of this book? Right? Why, why does he jump right in there? I think there's two reasons. Number one, that's really clear from Chronicles. He wants us to remember that God brings judgment for disobedience. He argues that it's not the Philistines, it's not Saul himself that caused Saul's death. It is the Lord that puts Saul to death. The position of Israel at the end of Saul's life was God's judgment on their disobedience, not the power of the Philistine gods. It wasn't that these Philistine gods had any power. This was God Almighty judging their sin. Likewise, these people who had just come back from exile because of their breach of faith, it wasn't because the Babylonians were stronger. It was because God was chastening them. Now, why does that matter? Look at number two. The second thing that I think we need to see here is it's precisely in these moments that God brings life out of death. The powerful reality of telling Saul's death in this way is that it is precisely the means through which God gives the kingdom over to David. For the chronicler, David serves as the ideal type of king that will pursue the heart of God and order the life of God's people to seek the face of the Lord. This would have been important for the first readers of Chronicles as they'd been sent into exile because of their own breach of faith. Just like God brought David out of the time of Saul's destruction so he could bring redemption and life out of their destruction and death. Now, what they wouldn't realize is it wouldn't come for several hundred years, right? Even if you go read the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai says, hey, you're going to build this temple and the glory of the nations is going to step into this temple. And they don't realize that it's 400 years until God Almighty takes on a human frame and walks into that temple and brings redemption. That God in the flesh shows up and actually brings redemption out of ultimate destruction. But what he's inviting them to see is it doesn't matter how hopeless the situation looks. It doesn't matter how dark the situation looks. God is not out of control. God is not out of control. Doesn't matter how much it looks like the gods of this world are winning. Progressivism, naturalism, scientism, whatever you want to put in there. It doesn't matter how much it looks like it's winning and pervading and prevailing on the people of God. What's the answer? Obedience. Seek the face of the Lord. Right? That's the If Saul's the foil, what's our response? Obedience and seek the face of the Lord. Now, what's the profound implication that we all are faced with right now? None of us is righteous. No, not one. Right? Look at, I have this on here in Romans 3. Paul picks up this language that saturates the, the, the books of Chronicles and wants to make us really, really aware that none of us seek God. Every one of us is Saul, right? We have not obeyed the command of the Lord. And there's places where we've outright disobeyed full on. There's places where we've obeyed in part and then made excuses for not obeying. We're just like that. And 
We do not seek the Lord in our own desire and in our own strength. And because of that, every single one of us is deserving of the same horrendous death that Saul died at the hand of God that the Lord would judge us in the same way, that we would experience his wrath, that we would experience his, uh, his judgment against us. But the glory of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, God made a way for his righteousness, his obedience, his seeking of the Lord to be made known to you apart from your obedience and pursuit of his glory. Look at Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, and we'll end here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So people of God, here's, here's how I want us to respond in this, right? If the book of Chronicles is written for us to actually respond, it's not meant just to be like, oh, that's a cool Bible story. Let's go on, have a good brunch. Maybe we could talk about it a little bit later this afternoon. We are to take on a heart posture when we read through these things. And what we're meant to do is as we read of Saul's breach of faith, we're supposed to go, I have done that. My, I, I gave lip service to wanting to be sacrificial to God and merciful to God, but I was partially obedient and it's not obedience at all. I have sinned and I have transgressed against the holy God. I didn't seek his face. And in those places, rather than repenting and running to him, I often blame and shift things around and tell God why I did it that way rather than the other way. I'm just like Saul. We get to cast ourselves on Jesus Christ and go, your perfect obedience and your perfect pursuit of God can actually be given to me as a gift so that I can seek to, by his grace, obey him and seek his face. Because I said this a little bit last week, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this really strongly in how we're walking through this book. We are in a moment that is really dark. We're in a moment that's really dark. It looks like God is not winning. I mean, I don't know about you. You guys might think that it doesn't look like that. You might think everything's okay. And we could talk on the side. It looks like we're in a very similar place of the, the Philistines are pressing down upon us. Everybody's running for their, for their lives, diving into tombs. What is the response of our heart as the people of God? Is it to like double down? Is it to like try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? It's none of those things. It is to look full face at the one who came, lived, died, is raised to the right hand of the father, who's given us his spirit as a down payment and to repent for what we've done that has transgressed his ways and lay ourselves out before him in a posture of seeking going, God, we want you. We want you. We repent. We call upon your name. You promised that you would be gracious and fill us and turn toward us and heal us. God, would you do that? 
So that's how we're gonna respond this morning. Would you stand with me? We're gonna come and celebrate the table of the Lord. We're going to look again at the broken body, the shed blood of the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Recognizing that each one of us, you and me both, have been faithless. We've been treacherous. We have gone after other gods. We've broken faith with the, with the living and true God. And we deserve his righteous wrath. But in Christ Jesus, we might have life and life evermore. If you believe that, you're a Christian, we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, you dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. The servers are going to be right up here in the front, in the middle, both sides of the balcony, and a gluten-free station over here to my right. We're going to celebrate the reality of the gift of grace in Christ Jesus, that he alone is the one who obeys the Lord and seeks the Lord and brings us into life with him. And now we set our hearts to obey and seek him. We repent for our sins and we call upon his name. And we'll do that uh, together as the family of God. And as every week, we have people that would love to pray with you. If there's a thing going on in your life or your soul that you want people to stand with you and ask God for his grace, you need healing power even in your body, we'd love to ask the Lord to be who he is in those places. Uh, don't, don't miss an opportunity to have a, a fellow brother or sister stand with you and ask God to meet you and speak to you even in this moment. Uh, we're gonna come and receive uh, here, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, we'll take communion together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the gift of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you were faithful where we were not. Thank you that you were sought after the face of the Father where we did not. And thank you that you have given us life abundantly in him. God, so as we come to the table, would you nourish us? Would you strengthen us? Would you prompt our hearts to places where we, we need to realign our lives with your ways and your goodness and your grace. God, come and minister to us now by your spirit and through even, even the life of our spiritual family. Would you come in Jesus' name? Amen.